I want to begin with the question. Every generation, every generation has to wrestle with the question. And it's, a, it's the question that sets human beings up against all other creation. The question is this, why am I here? Why am I on this earth? Why do I exist? Philosophers put it like this. They ask the question, what is life? What is life? Shakespeare, the legendary playwright through the character of Macbeth, compares life to a bad actor on stage. He says it like this. Life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tall tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So, rather bleak take on life from Shakespeare. Mark Twain, the American journalist from the late 1800s, quipped this about life. He said, laugh is short, break the rules, forgive quickly, kiss slowly, love truly, laugh uncontrollably, and never regret anything that makes you smile. Frank Sinatra, the late blue-eyed crooner from Vegas, expresses his struggle with life in the song, That's Life. That's life, that's what people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. And he goes on to say, but I fall flat on my face, but I pick myself up and I get back in the race. Because that's life. It's a struggle, but you got to keep going. And then you get to some deeper philosophers. The Dread Pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride. <laughs> Never want to sugarcoat the truth. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you differently is selling you something. And then, of course, the greatest philosopher of all from my generation may have the best take on the meaning of life ever penned. See if you can tell me who this is. My mama said life was like a box of chocolate. You never know what you're going to get. Forrest Gump, what a, I mean, what a philosopher, he's right. And even with all of these opinions, you, you must personally wrestle with answering that question. What is life? What does it mean to be human? Because life is wonderful. Life is also horrible. Life is great, it's rotten, it's exciting, it's boring, it's satisfying, it's frustrating. It's full of opportunity and deep disappointment. And those who see it one way are often contradicted by somebody who sees it another. Optimists, pessimists, realists, idealists, even the half-mad, like my sister Gina, are, sees the world with their own color of glasses. So the question, who's right? And I'm going to offer up today that the Bible has the answer, and it's a story that explains what it truly is. So if you can open up to Matthew chapter 14, the title is, This is Life. And we're going to find life through the experience of his disciples. I'm going to ask you to join me on a journey on a small boat floating on a huge sea late at night in the middle of a ferocious storm because this is where we're going to find what life is all about. Starting in verse 22 of Matthew 14. Follow along with me. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, 
he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost! They said and cried out in fear. I thought these were strong, tough, burly men. It's a ghost! But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. He began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So here's the context. Last week we talked about feeding of the 5,000. One of the greatest miracle, if not the greatest miracle, aside from the resurrection of Jesus, toward four, four times in all four Gospels. It was more likely probably Jesus fed 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish, a stadium-sized group of people, and they were all satisfied. You can imagine them on the grass with their bellies full and the sun beating on their face saying, this is good, life is good. So I'd say on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being, oh, no big deal, or 10 being, wow, this was a 100 type of miracle. Kind of miracle where your mouth hangs open and you are caught in such wonder that you are frozen and you can't say a word. You're so shocked by what he just did. I would give it anything to see it. Could you imagine that? That would have been incredible because you'd get to see Jesus's full throttle power just on display with your very own eyes. I'll tell you, being able to experience something like that would have to seal the deal of faith. You'd, you'd see it so you would know it and you'd never doubt again. And that singular moment, that moment you saw when everybody's satisfied, Jesus proved his mastery over creation and everything. He also proved he can be completely trusted so you don't ever need to worry again. End of story. Jesus is God. I know, though, some people have said to me, if God would perform a miracle like that just for me, if he'd do it just for me, I would believe. I would have to believe. I couldn't doubt it. But as it stands, they say, life always seems to be against me. How could you not follow Jesus if you were a disciple? Your faith would be so strong, you'd probably never doubt again. But here in America in the year 2022, nothing's going my way. Where is God? I went to the hospital two weeks ago, and a guy said, I said, how are you doing? He goes, not good. I've never been good. Nothing ever goes my way. But if I was a disciple and I got to see a miracle like that, I would believe, ah, not so fast. Not so fast. This is where our next story comes in. Just when everything seems great, a crowd believes that Jesus is the Messiah, their stomachs are full, there's smiles and laughter around. 
That's the exact moment. That is the exact moment when life happens. I want to start with an initial question because I think this is, this is always... I try, to, I try to take the text and wrestle, wrestle it with my own heart. And there's a question that I have concerning miracles. Have you ever noticed you can pray for something, even something that you never considered really a real possibility, and then God actually answers it in amazing fashion? Like, Gina, I was, I was thinking about when you were up here, I can remember praying for you, saying, God, if you just saved my sister, that's enough for me. And then you're, like, not only are you saved, not only are you going on, but I'm, I, I kind of forget that. Like, I was desperate for that. And how quick after a miracle happens, when we say God is really real, then out of the blue, something bad happens, like a bad game of King of the Mountain. I'm on the top, and then somebody pushes me, and I roll to the bottom, and I'm splayed out, feel miserable as I did before I even began, scared out of my mind, either in my bedroom or in the kitchen or in the woods, crying out to God, feeling vulnerable and saying, where are you? Why don't miracles seem to get better mileage? Did you ever wonder that? It's crazy. I can imagine in this story, immediately after the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples must have just been like, Jesus is it, man. I don't ever have to worry again. Done. In John 6.15, the people themselves wanted Jesus to be king right there. That's why it says Jesus told his disciples to go on the boat, I'm going to take care of the crowd, and he put the crowd away because the crowd wanted to set him up as king right there, and he just said, all right, fellas, you go on the boat. I can imagine him saying, you go ahead, I'll meet you on the other side of the lake. Let me, put, let me send these people away. And so you can imagine disciples going down the hill. So they're going down the hill, slapping each other on the back, telling stories. Do you see that guy who just kept eating and eating and it never went away? You know, you can hear him. They get in the boat. They push off. The clouds come. And in a mere couple hours, they're crying like little babies. <laughs> what happened? The same thing that happens to me almost every other day. Every other day. Life Happens. Let me tell you about life. Let's talk about life. Life in this passage is going to display itself in three, what I would say, 3D fashion. In all its vivid colors. And the first D we're going to find is distance. I'll show you what I mean by that. Look at verses 23 and 24. 23. So after Jesus had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance. So stop there a second. So distance. Jesus is on top of the mountain. So Galilee is like a bowl. It's like a bowl. You can kind of see it up here. Had mountains and then the waters underneath. It's a bowl. So all the water would go down to the bottom. And that's where it would dwell. Jesus, however, after he sent the crowds off, went to the top of the mountain to pray. He sent the disciples down to the boat. And that's where they engage the storm. And that's exactly what it's like in life. When troubles come, 
we tend to feel like God is way up there and he could care less about me down here. He doesn't even care. And what's, what's God doing up there? He's all, what's he doing up there? I, oh, he's probably playing checkers with those fat cherubs. You know, those angels that shoot arrows for Valentine's Day? That's probably what he's doing, right? I don't, I don't know what Jesus is doing up there. Him and the Father are probably playing Parcheesi. While I'm down here dying, where is he? That's human nature. It's called deism, actually. It's a fancy term for a way some people view God. I'd say majority of Americans. Here's what deism teaches. That God exists... He created everything, but beyond that, after he created it, he stepped aside and he has given us reason and intelligence to figure everything out for ourselves. He tossed us down here like a bag of marbles and let us just roll around and figure the rest out. And then he says to us, good luck, see you after you die. And people feel that way. It's not really much of a help. David says in Psalm 13, one of the most powerful psalms, David feels alone. Life is going bad. And he begins and he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you forget me forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? David felt it. Jesus felt it. My God. My God, why why have you forsaken? I feel like this a lot. And I know you do. Especially in the past couple of years. I feel this way because I'm human. It's a normal way to feel. We are quick to feel alone, unheard. Sin is done. It's called alienation, where we really don't feel the presence of God often. Often. Some people say they pray, and it's like the prayer hits, a, hits the wall and comes back down. The second D is difficulty. Look at verse 24. But the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves that were being pushed by the wind. Whoo! Whoo! Another wave. Another wave. Another wave. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. Make it stop. And it doesn't. It just keeps going. Difficulty. The boat is being beaten and battered, and when you're in the middle of your own storm, those waves don't stop. Wave after wave pounds, the wind makes you feel like you're always fighting. Feel like I'm always fighting just to move forward. And if you quit, you know like that boat, you're going to be pushed against the shore and shattered against the rock. And some of you do feel shattered. This is what life is like. Ecclesiastes says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Life's against me. In the 80s, there was a singer called Phil Collins. Jeff, remember Phil Collins? Jeff's my brother-in-law. He came to. Jeff loves Phil. We listen to Phil Collins a lot. Phil Collins had this song called The Roof is Leaking, and I remember listening to it in my bedroom alone, feeling the same way, and it goes like this. The roof is leaking, and the wind is howling. Kids are crying because the sheets are so cold, and it's bad. Woke this morning and found my hands were frozen. I've tried to fix the fire, but you know, and it has a swear word, I won't say that, the darn thing's too old. That song, I, I felt that song sometimes. Life's hard. And no one's exempt 
which leads to the third part, and that's darkness, deep darkness. Starting in verse 25, it says, during the fourth watch of the night. That's when Jesus appeared. So they made it all the way in that boat, and they're still not rescued, even to the fourth watch. What does that mean? So the fourth watch is three in the morning to six in the morning. It's a, it's a military term. The first watch, a military man would be uh, stationed, a sentry would be stationed. The first watch would be six o'clock to nine o'clock. That's twilight. The sun's still kind of out. It's going down. Then you have from nine until midnight. That's dusk. Still a little light on the horizon. And then finally, the stars start sparkling, but it's still early. You still have a lot of strength. You can stay up for some more. Then you have three until six, or I'm sorry, then you have midnight to, th to three. You still have strength, but it is dark, but you still have strength, but three to six, I'm done, and I can't see anything. That's the fourth watch. As one person said, it is always darkest just before the dawn, and that's why. It's not just dark, but I'm, I'm worn out. I'm worn out with this hospital. I've had it. I can't do it anymore. This relationship, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. It's the fourth watch. The disciples were probably soaked to the bone, bailing water, trying to row forward some more, and they had to just be done. And in their heart, they're like, where is he? Where is he? That's deep darkness. Here's the question, why does it seem like God always waits until the last second before he arrives? Because rescue is always the last second. Because the moment you're rescued, you don't ever worry. Just uh, anybody here tired of the storm? I mean, really, <laughs> just tired of it? Does anyone in here have their limit? Does anyone feel like life can't get any darker? Dale, any darker. That's life. At this point, I want to make an observation. This is an interesting thing. And I want you to think hard on that. Look at verses 25 and middle of 26. 25, during the fourth watch of night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. So stop right there. We should say, yes! All right! He showed up. But it keeps reading. Um, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, why didn't they cheer? No, no, they were terrified. They said, it's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Instead of saying, I knew he'd make it, he just fed 15,000. Oh, he, we'll be fine, fellas. He knows we're out here. Instead of that, man, they saw in Jesus a monster. As one guy said, fatigue makes us cowards. I will state it like this. You can tell when life has begun to overwhelm you when problems become terrifying. Anxiety, fear, in this moment begin to warp your perspective on who God is. Let me kind of walk through this. Terror, terror is when you are so spent that you see or imagine the problems you're facing is much bigger and malevolent than they actually are. Remember when I first got my license as a kid, and, you know, 
And then, uh, you know, you have to get this, you have to get this license plate. And I was, had a car and I, I didn't have a license plate and I had to get a license plate. And I thought, if I don't get a license plate, then the cops are going to catch me. If the cops catch me, they're going to throw me in jail. And if I'm thrown in jail, I'll be there under 20 years and I, I'm going to never get out of jail. How did a license plate go to that? Terror becomes overwhelming. You know you've had it when little issues become the world to you. Massive. Anxiety, anxiety is a feeling of hopelessness against these monsters. I don't have anything in me. And then fear is saying, I'm done. Might as well give up and quit because I'm dead. The disciples screamed because they really believed that there were old ancient mirrors coming up out of the lake that were going to come and choke them, kill them. There's ghosts that are going to kill me. What are the ghosts going to do? Don't go float through. I don't care. I'm scared. So they scream. All three dimensions of life, if you let them get too much of them, they will result in complete irrationality. Some of you are living in complete and utter irrationality. Your problems aren't that bad, but man, they're chasing you. Like a ghost, where you say, if you say this, say, why me? It only happens to me. Actually, that's life. What happened to these 12 men? Have they not the previous day just experienced a miracle of life-altering proportions? Didn't Jesus show his complete dominance over nature? So wouldn't walking on water be a walk in the park for him as compared to feeding 15,000 people? Ah, when we're overcome with life. We forget. We forget everything. Do you remember March 2020? The lockdowns started happening. I can remember I went out on my front porch because we weren't allowed to go into work. And I sat in a chair getting some sun, but I, it felt like there was, it felt like I'm the only one in the neighborhood. I'm thinking, is everybody dead? Like in um, the Ten Commandments movies, there's, it's the last plague. It's the plague of the firstborn. The way they showed it, it's this creeping smoke that goes around the corners of houses. And I imagine, is that what's happening with COVID? If I go into the town of Kent City, is there smoke going to get me? And if I step in that smoke, am I just going to collapse and die? Like, that's what I was thinking. Like, it's the end! No more toilet paper. <laughs> I mean, that's the end of civilization. No more toilet paper. And then, uh-oh, if a, if a guy has COVID and he's doing meat processing somewhere in Nebraska and he sneezes on all the chicken and the meat and the beef, can I trust any of the meat and the beef I'm getting in the store? I better not. Man, and will even cooking it kill? I don't know. Every business is going to go under. The church will never reopen. I'm going to lose my house. My kids are going to have to beg in the street. Half the world's population is going to die. Armageddon's here. That's how I felt March 2020. And then over the last two years, some bad things did happen. They really did. Our church lost some really dear people that we loved. But the world didn't implode. We didn't run out of toilet paper. We got tons of it stacked back over there. If you need some, Arnie would be happy to give you a roll. <laughs> the Black Plague didn't kill a quarter of the world's population. In some ways, truthfully, 
God has done more things in this church body in the last two years than he's ever done, ever since I've been here. I can't believe the money we've been raising for the building. I'm shocked. Some people come into my office and they ask me questions about God that they would never ask me 10 years ago. God has done some amazing things. But then, Ukraine. And I get phone calls. I got a couple phone calls. Chris, you know you know what's going on in Russia. What's happening in Ukraine? You know Putin. What's he doing? I said, I don't know Putin. I know Darren Nemi without a t-shirt. He looks just like him. I don't know what's going on in, I don't know what's going on in Ukraine. The gas prices. Oh, the gas prices are up 20 cents. That means I have two less cigarettes. Ah! It's the end of the world. My son comes in. Am I going to be drafted? Yes, and you're going to be sent up to the northern part of the North Pole decoding ciphers of Putin's dangerous scheme of reinstating. Remember Red Dawn? He's going to have paratroopers coming to the UP. Remember that movie? Fantastic movie. <laughs> Scared me half to death. How soon we forget I'll soon we forget. But there is one more dimension. There's a fourth dimension. In fact, I believe this fourth dimension is the point of light. This fourth dimension comes after the first three dimension, and I believe the grand purpose of the first three dimensions are to lead us to the fourth dimension. This fourth dimension of life is where meaning can be found. And that fourth dimension is found in verse 27. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. What is the fourth dimension? It's deliverance. It's deliverance. Deliverance is the same word we use for being saved. For salvation. For redemption. For resurrection. God is not a deist who is far away playing checkers with fat Valentine's babies up in heaven. He's not far away. God is not troubled by the difficulties that surround us and are lapping up against our boat. He doesn't, he doesn't get worried. God is never late. God is never worried. God is never fretting. Fret not. God, I believe, purposely allows the first three dimensions because they help us see and appreciate the fourth dimension. Think about it. Think about it one second. When the world was being flooded by water, he had Noah build an ark. When the Jews were being driven into the Red Sea by Pharaoh, God split the waters. Could you imagine that a second? Like your back's to the lake and your chariots are going to kill you. There is no possibility. He split the water. When Israel was being provoked by a giant named Goliath, God sent a boy with a sling. A little boy with a sling. When sin held the world in slavery and condemnation, God sent his only son, his only begotten son, to die on the cross. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how also along with him will he not graciously give us all things? He loves to rescue, loves it. And in order to rescue you, it is required that you exercise saving faith. And saving faith is expressed here in one sentence. And if you want to know what is the faith that saves, 
it is found in verse 27. Take courage or take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, says, stop being so terrified. Stop being so easily seeing monsters behind every shadow. Remember what already has been done for you in the past? Don't worry. Take heart. As David says in the end of Psalm 13, Psalm 13 began and he said, you know, God, where, don't you see what's going on? Why are you so far off? Every day I have sorrow in my heart. But then at the very end of Psalm 13, David says, but... I will rejoice and sing of your praises because you have been good to me. You know how you take heart? Look back and remember. So I look at my sister Gina. I remember, I remember what she was like before she saved, and I remember her now. He can do it again with anybody. It is I. Wow. Instead of focusing on your problems and difficulties, look to the one who is life. I am the way, the truth, I'm the life. That's life. Jesus is there and he's there for you. He's with you and he will not leave or forsake you. Look at 28 and 29 again. So 27, take courage, it is I. And then Peter said, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come on the water. So he says, come. I want you to think through this for a second. Why do you think the disciples were screaming? I mean, they saw a ghost, but I think they were more in fear that they were going to die by drowning. So you have Peter in there, and Peter was a fisherman, and he probably heard stories of people dying in Galilee. So I think their big fear is they're going to die. What is the object of their fear? The water and the waves. The water and the waves kept buffeting them, lapping over the boat, threatening them, question, what is Jesus walking on? The water and the waves. The thing they were most afraid of, Jesus had under his feet. He was the king of the water and the waves. The thing you are most afraid of, Jesus is king over. So that's where the third part comes in. Don't be afraid. That just means step out with courage. Live in the reality of God's promises. So don't hide. Don't quit. Don't disengage. Don't cower in fear. Don't moan. Don't live in timid weakness. Be bold. Be strong. For the Lord your God is with you. He really is. And this leads to Peter's response in 28 to 31. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. Come, Jesus says. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came forward. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. So the question is, and this is a question that's debated a lot, did Peter do the right thing to get out of the boat or the wrong thing? Because some people, some writers will say, Peter's just impetuous. He just jumps out of the boat without thinking. Some people are like, no, what Peter did was exercise incredible faith. Personally, I'm not too sure actually. I mean, I can really spiritualize this, but I do have to say he did take Jesus at his word when he said, come, and he did. And he did walk on the water. Even if it was for a little bit, he did walk on the water. That's amazing. I mean, that's incredible. 
But then it says he saw the wind, which means he saw the winds pushing those waves. He saw it. And when he saw it, this human understanding, the understanding he got from past life of his experiences, saw the fierceness of the wind and it took his attention off Jesus and his word, which um, made him sink. He began to sink. I just have a a word about doubt. I want to talk about doubt for one second because some people will say doubt is sin. And Jesus is upset at doubt here. But there's two kinds of doubt. We make it, we're too simplistic sometimes. Never doubt. Well, what does that mean? Because there's a valid type of doubt and then there's a sinful doubt. I call the first doubt natural doubt. Human understanding is just a part of life because we're born We're born limited. We need to learn and grow and asking questions and sometimes doubting things is a part of life. It really is. And this sort of doubt drives learning and insight. Remember one person first told me that the King James Bible is the only version that you should read from? And I doubted it. And he told me, he goes, you don't doubt God. That is not valid doubt. I'm asking questions about should I or should I not trust this as the only side of the version? That's not necessarily sinful doubt. That's questioning. We all should question it. We should question, how do I know I can trust this? After you have that answered, then the next part comes in, which is sinful doubt is when God has told us something clearly from his word. He tells us exactly how to live according to his word. And yet I waver because I think I'm smarter than what I read in the Word. That's doubt. Jesus bid Peter to come. He walks for a little, then he sees what's really happening around him. And at that moment, he thinks he really knows better than Jesus does. But the problem with Peter is Peter only knows addition. Jesus knows calculus. He's got a hundred other options out there other than Peters, I'm either going to die or I stay in the boat. That's all I got. Those are my only options. Jesus is like, no, why don't you believe in me? Hold my hand and we can walk on the mountains together. If you just trust me. No, Jesus, you're not that smart. I know more than you. I'm a bit smarter. It's kind of interesting when Sadie talks about transgendered. We live in a world where the Bible clearly says there's a man and a woman, but we're not allowed to say that anymore. Why not? Because, you know. We're a little bit smarter than the God who made man and woman. We know a little more. So Peter, in his own doubting heart, believed he'd be a fool to trust what Jesus says. However, Trevor read this verse, perfect verse, Trevor. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And he shall uh, acknowledge him in all your ways, and he shall direct your path. So sinful doubt is when God clearly has spoken, but you think you know better. So since Peter forgot about God's power and trusts his own reasoning, God let him sink. Jesus let Peter sink. Sometimes Jesus lets you sink. You want, to, 
You want to put your career, maybe your paycheck, your political candidate, your friends, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your vacation home, your leisure time, your pleasure, your entertainment before me? Jesus says, okay, all right. You can put them before me. And then he'll stand back and he'll let you sink. Life is really all about sinking, actually. We have been told it's about success. No, really, life's about sinking. Because it is in the sinking I will finally look up to the one riding above my problems, and I will reach out and pray to him. Look at verse 30. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me, save me. That is the shortest prayer in the Bible, but it is the most potent prayer in the Bible. And that's music to Jesus' ears. That's why he came to save you. He came to seek and save that, those who are lost. It is the purpose of the sinking, because in the sinking, I finally reach and trust Watch what verse 31 and 32 say. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. You have little faith. He said, why'd you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, he probably picked Peter up, dangled him by maybe, grabbed him by the shirt collar, dangled him there, and dropped him in the boat. I don't know what he did. But it says when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Like, that's so cool. The wind just instantly died down. Jesus is kind of amazing, isn't it? It's crazy. It's a crazy story. But then look what happened. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him. That's life's end game. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Being rescued from the storms of life, I am just going to offer to you is the end game of life because it ends in worship. That's the point. That's the point. That's why you're on this earth is to worship a man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth because not only did he create the world but he saved you out of the world because he is the son of God. It's amazing. Life is not about ease and comfort as you sail along waves of wealth and happiness. Life is not about staying high up on the mountain gaining success after success. Life is not even about misery and hopelessness and ghosts haunting you at every turn where life stinks, it's meaningless. That's not what life is about. Life is about finally seeing Jesus as God and learning to trust him completely. Personally, I know life can be terrifying. I know it. At times, it really does seem like God doesn't care while everyone around you seems to be doing great. That happens to every one of us. I'm not going to say once in our life. I'd almost say almost every other month. <laughs> like it's bad sometimes. You are sinking. I think what God wants you to do in the moment when you're sinking is first stop. Stop obsessing about the winds and the waves and seeing the monster that they are not. Truthfully, that's the hardest one for me. 
Quit making your problems into terrifying ghosts that can never be defeated. That's the first thing. Secondly, instead, learn to look at what God says in his word. And trust it. And then the third thing, as you do, to me, reaching out the hand is just engaging in life again. One day at a time. Just reach out the hand one day at a time. That's all he asks you. And he will lift you up. And all, as you reach out, just say, Lord, save me. And that's enough. The reason why it's enough is because Jesus is the actual son of the living God. And he loves to save.